Climate change is already affecting people, ecosystems, and livelihoods all around the world. Limiting warming to 1.5 degrees is not impossible, but will require unprecedented transitions in all aspects of society. When the Saudis have been emboldened to do more and more heinous crimes, it has always been with a wink and a nod, if not an actual support from the United States. And it didn't start with Donald Trump. Today, they can lower the flag, but Palestine will continue to live because we have defied the odds as Palestinians. We have continued to exist. We will continue to exist. We're going to achieve our rights. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And in a week like so many weeks that ranged from the terrifying to the comical to the absurd, we will conclude our D.C. in the Era of Climate Change series with a talk with environmental justice activist Michelle Roberts. Gerald Horn is in the house to break down international news, and we hope to bring you voices from outside what was the D.C. office of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO, which was forced to close its offices by the Trump administration. But we begin this week's headlines with a dire report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which said that unless, quote, rapid, far-reaching, and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society, end quote, occurs, that there will be a climate catastrophe as soon as 2040. The report urges global leaders to strive for no more than a 1.5 Celsius rise in temperature above what was the pre-industrial global temperature that existed in the middle of the 19th century. Ho Sung Lee, chair of the panel, summarized the findings. Climate change is already affecting people, ecosystems, and livelihoods all around the world. Second, limiting warming to 1.5 degrees is not impossible, but will require unprecedented transitions in all aspects of society. Third, there are clear benefits to keep warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to 2 degrees or higher. Every bit of warming matters. Lastly, the limiting warming to 1.5 degrees can go hand in hand with achieving other world goals such as achieving sustainable development and eradicating poverty. The special report will be a key reference at the Katowice Climate Change Conference held in Poland in December when governments will review the Paris Agreement. 91 authors and editors from 40 countries prepared the IPCC report, but neither it nor climate change was even mentioned by the Trump administration this week as Hurricane Michael devastated Gulf Coast communities. Instead, as the hurricane made landfall Wednesday night, Trump held a campaign rally in Pennsylvania where he continued to berate women and men 
who came forward to testify about Brett Kavanaugh's alleged past of sexual assault or drunkenness. The same day, he even described Hurricane Michael, a Category 4 storm, which was as large as the state of Delaware as just a large tornado. But this failure to recognize global climate reality was just one point in the many pointed star of right-wing half-truths, official lies, misdeeds, and media manipulation this week. Brian Kemp, Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, running against Democrat Stacey Abrams, is holding up 53,000 voter registrations, 70% of which are from African Americans, as he exploits a 2013 state rule that voters' application forms must exactly match Georgia's existing state records for every resident. The voter purge is just Kemp's latest attempt to disenfranchise voters in Georgia. In August, the Randolph County Board of Elections rejected his proposal to close more than three-quarters of the majority black counties' polling places. Here in D.C., in addition to holding an unprecedented second swearing-in ceremony for Kavanaugh at the White House, during which Trump continued to call Kavanaugh's accusers liars, he wrote an op-ed published in USA Today in which he erroneously claims that proposed legislation for Medicare for All will take away quality health care for seniors. Senator Bernie Sanders, author of the legislation, released a video that pretty much said that Trump is a liar. I find it doubly ironic that not only is Trump lying again, but now this guy who proposed and fought for cutting 32 million Americans from the health care they currently have by eliminating the Affordable Care Act. This president, who in his last budget proposed a trillion dollar cut in Medicaid, a $500 billion cut in Medicare, this president is now acting like he cares at all about health care for seniors or anybody else. Locally in D.C., health care providers and residents packed a hearing this week in continued opposition to the announced closure of the 238-bed Providence Hospital, the only hospital serving the predominantly black eastern half of the district. And after four black businesses in the Northeast Deanwood section of the city were illegally locked out of their establishments with one-day notice by a developer, Black Lives Matter activists and allies protested outside the home of the company's head, Adrian Washington, in the Crestwood section of D.C. It is our duty to win! It is our duty to win! We must love and support one another! We must love and support one another! We have nothing to lose but our chains! We have nothing to lose but our chains! According to the local CBS affiliate WUSA 9, Washington's company, 1100 Eastern LLC, a division of Neighborhood Development Company, ordered businesses to relocate because of alleged environmental contamination from a gas station and dry cleaners once located at the site. Owners of the businesses said they received no details about the alleged contamination and some have secured legal representation and moved back into their shops. This is the same block in Deanwood where there was a controversial stop and frisk conducted by the Metropolitan Police Department in June, which escalated into heated confrontations with neighborhood residents. The WUSA report also stated that the new owners and developers of the property received an $11.4 million loan from the District of Columbia to redevelop the properties.
And in another story about business in D.C. that is making national news, the D.C. Council is moving closer to overturning a vote by city residents to raise the minimum wage for tip workers. Lydia Curtis has more. There were fireworks at the district building Monday, October 1st, when city council voted on whether to amend a bill that implements Initiative 77. Councilwoman Alyssa Silverman introduced the bill that she described as a compromise because it allowed the voters to be heard while protecting tipped wage workers. Councilman Robert White agreed. Today's vote is not a vote on whether we agree with Initiative 77. Rather, it's a vote on whether we will respect the will of the majority of voters. I cannot and will not ignore the clear vote of the residents on this issue just because I disagree with the outcome. We should consider what signal repealing this initiative will send. When our turnout in elections is already embarrassingly low, and when our local democracy is pushed aside by the federal government, when our vote is denied undemocratically in Congress, what signal does it send when we overturn a ballot initiative before the ink is dried? Chairman Mendelson disagreed, stating that the bill he introduced incorporated some of the language of the amendment, so the introduction of an amending bill wasn't necessary. The problem is that his bill rescinds Initiative 77, which was voted for by D.C. citizens. At the end of the day, an eight-member majority voted against amending Mendelssohn's bill, which moves the process towards rescinding Initiative 77. This is Lydia Curtis reporting from Northwest Washington, D.C. Thank you, Lydia. Well, finally, in culture and media, Turn Me Loose, a play about comic genius Dick Gregory, is playing through October 21st at the Arena Stage in Southwest D.C. And in movies on the big screen, The Hate You Give, a Black Lives Matter story based on the young adult novel by Angie Thomas, is playing nationally. Also Saturday, October 13th, the Double Exposure Investigative Film Festival and Symposium presents the D.C. premiere of the film The Unafraid by Anayansi Prado and Heather Courtney about young undocumented students in Georgia fighting to end the ban on their ability to attend state universities. And that will be followed by a panel discussion with the director, 12.30 p.m. at the Naval Heritage Center, 701 Pennsylvania Avenue in Northwest D.C. Sunday, October 14th, Nelson A. Dennis will speak about his book, War Against All Puerto Ricans, Revolution and Terror in America's Colony, in which he tells the story of the forgotten 1959 revolution in Puerto Rico and the long history of U.S. intervention on the island. That's 2 p.m. at the Central Library in Columbia, Maryland. And finally, finally, Chantel James attended a movie this week that might make you think differently about that designer cup of coffee. On Tuesday nights at 7 p.m., Bloom Bars, a community arts nonprofit in Columbia Heights, holds a film screening and discussion. This week, the film was Black Gold. This documentary chronicles the efforts of Ethiopian businessman Tadesi Maskela to negotiate fair prices for the 70,000 coffee farmers in his collective. The Ethiopian coffee farmer receives between 20 to 50 cents for a kilo of coffee, while coffee retails for many times that in the West. Free trade would allow countries like Ethiopia to no longer be dependent on food aid, as its people are able to live lives of dignity off their labor and the natural resources of the land. 
The film moved those gathered to examine the ways our own consumer habits here in the United States impact the lives of people across the world and led to strategizing on ways to support Ethiopian farmers as they fight for the right to be able to feed their families and send their children to school from their work. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. You can actually check out the movie Black Gold online. The website is blackgoldmovie.com. When we come back, Gerald Horn on international news. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now we're turning to this week's international news with the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I want to first go to what is believed to be the gruesome murder of U.S. resident and Washington Post columnist Jamel Hashochi inside the Saudi Arabia consulate in Turkey. Now, I started out this week thinking that this bold apparent killing was one step too far for the reigning Saudi prince Mohammed bin Salman, who reportedly hatched a plan to lure Heshochi to Saudi Arabia. But then Thursday, Donald Trump said from the Oval Office that he would not let this incident get in the way of the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, which buys $110 billion in weapons from the U.S., well, I think it's possible that the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, colloquially known as MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, has overreached. First of all, he overreached in 2017 when he slapped a blockade on Qatar, the small Persian Gulf monarchy, which then caused this monarchy to establish a very close alliance with Turkey. Keep in mind that the alleged supposed crime took place in Istanbul, in Turkey, and apparently the Turks were monitoring very closely and carefully the Saudi consulate, and apparently has video and audio recordings that point to the possibility, or if not probability, that there was a murder that took place there just in the last week or so. Then the Saudis overreached with regard to this Yemen war, which has not only proved to be a catastrophe in terms of human rights suffering in Yemen, but also has exposed the Saudi military as not being up to snuff, despite the fact that, as your comment suggested, it has been armed to the teeth by the United States of America. And I should also say that this debacle involving Saudi Arabia has given a wonderful opportunity to the critics of Mr. Trump to club him with this, not least since his son-in-law and advisor, Jared Kushner, has been a close ally of MBS, the de facto 
uh, ruler of Saudi Arabia. It's also interesting to note that Mr. Uh, MBS overreached when he detained in the last year or so a goodly number of the Saudi elite, including his cousins, basically involved in a shakedown where he extracted billions of dollars, supposedly for the Saudi treasury, although as it's turning out, some of it probably went into MBS's pockets. And this brings us to this investment conference that's to take place in Saudi Arabia in the next few days. The New York Times, which had been a sponsor of this conference, apparently has backed out under pressure. Uh, we need to pressure Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, to back out as well. And in any case, I think that Mr. MBS has been proven to be too big for his britches because not only has he tried to have close relations with Washington via Kushner and Trump, but he's also been turning up in Moscow. The Saudis have rather good relations with China as well. That's not going down very well with regard to the U.S. ruling elite. Probably they feel that they can find a puppet in Saudi Arabia to rule rather than the 33-year-old MBS. And it's possible that he will be pushed out, although more likely what will happen is that he'll blame this apparent murder on a rogue actor in the Saudi national security establishment who will then be jailed for a year or so and then be quietly freed and then moved to the French Riviera. Well, we haven't gotten to the end of that story, so we'll definitely keep watching it. So next, I'm really interested in a story, I believe reported by the New York Times, that talked about indicted Trump campaign official Rick Gates requesting proposals in 2016 from an Israeli firm to create fake online identities and use social media and other tools to basically help Donald Trump defeat his primary challengers and then Hillary Clinton. And this company is staffed by former Israeli intelligence officers. And even though there's no evidence that Trump used the company, the company received a $2 million check from the United Arab Emirates Crown Prince afterwards. So this just seems to feed into these discussions we've been having about how Russia Gate is really like Israel Gate. And they don't have any proof about collusion in terms of what Russia did, but there's plenty of mounting evidence about Israel being involved in election shenanigans. Well, the story that you mentioned raises broader and wider questions. When I read the story, the first thing that came to my mind, interestingly enough, is the case of Harvey Weinstein, the disgraced Hollywood mogul uh, now on trial or about to go on trial because of his sexual harassment offenses, including rape, according to the Manhattan DA, uh, that may lead to him serving a long jail term. What's striking is that Mr. Weinstein apparently hired a similar firm involving former Israeli intelligence agents to investigate the women and to slime the women who were charging him with these various offenses. I should also mention that the forward, the weekly or the monthly out of New York that covers Jewish affairs, just had a very striking story on an organization called Canary Mission that gathers dossiers and intelligence on pro-Palestinian activists and works very closely with the government of Israel and apparently 
with Israeli intelligence too, and presumably targets U.S. nationals who are involved in pro-Palestinian efforts, which then brings us to the Las Vegas casino billionaire, Sheldon Adelson, very close to Mr. Trump, very close to the Republican Party. In fact, it's just been revealed that in order to save the bacon of the Republican Party, he's pumped tens of millions of dollars into the GOP coffers for these November elections that are coming up in a few weeks. If we had a more honest and robust press in this country, there would be an immediate call for an investigation of all of these aspects of Israeli interference in U.S. internal affairs, but I'm afraid to say that it's left to we of Pacifica to try to do this enormous task. Right. Well, also this week, there was a surprise resignation of Nikki Haley at the U.N., and I know that I have felt actually embarrassed by some of her statements at the UN, the belligerence, the thumbing her nose at international law. But I was surprised to hear so much praise for Nikki Haley in the mainstream media. I was surprised, too, including an editorial in The New York Times that suggested that she would be missed. I'm not sure who they were trying to impress by running such a ridiculous editorial, but Unfortunately, Nikki Haley is symptomatic of a wider disturbing trend. Uh, She is a kind of twin of Bobby Jindal, the former governor of Louisiana, who became a leader of the Republican right and in the process converted from his parents' religion of Hinduism to Catholicism and then took on the name of Bobby as well. Uh, Nikki Haley As you know, her parents were Sikhs, a faith that is headquartered in South Asia, and she, too, abandoned that faith for Christianity. You'll note that she's rarely photographed without a sign of the cross, the Christian symbol, uh, around her neck. In some ways, like Kanye West, who was just in the Oval Office, uh, Nikki Haley's role is to help to distract us from the white supremacy of the Republican Party by putting this brown face forward. And that's supposed to help to convince us that the Republican Party is not what it is, which is the party of whiteness. Right. Well, we had a little piece of that uh, apparently really embarrassing and ridiculous performance by Kanye West at the White House. And I guess that's just par for the course for the kind of theater of of the absurd that is happening in D.C. very often. But, yes, it it definitely goes to the, I don't know, performance in brownface for Trump. And I guess there is some kind of natural transition to Brazil. Really alarming results in the first wave of their elections this week. So Bolsonaro, this extreme right-wing fascist, almost got 50% of the vote. And it made me wonder if they have issues with election fraud or suppression. It's quite disturbing, but I'm afraid to say it's part of an international trend. There's an expectation that in the elections in Bavaria that take place in the next 24 to 48 hours in Germany, that the neo-Nazis will make a respectable showing We all know what's going on in Hungary and in Poland and in Italy. 
And now we see these disturbing, troublesome results from Brazil, where Mr. Bolsonaro is backed by right-wing militarists. Keep in mind that this comes in the aftermath of the jailing of the man who may have prevailed if he had been allowed to run. I'm speaking of Lula da Silva, the former president who is now in jail. His successor, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached. And then we see the right-wing press in Brazil, and the right-wing press in Brazil is basically, for all intents and purposes, the only press. It's like if Fox News were the only press in the United States of America, they've been beating Mm. the drum for Mr. Bolsonaro, throwing dust in the eyes of the public. And what's even more disturbing is what a Bolsonaro victory might mean for BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Uh, How can BRICS be put forward as a reasonable alternative to North Atlantic hegemony when you have a neo-fascist sitting in the highest office in the land? But I don't think we should rule out the possibility that the Workers' Party uh, could come back and make a comeback. Uh, Their contestant, Mr. Haddad, uh, the former mayor of Sao Paulo, uh, is backed by uh, millions of Brazilians. And it's possible, and underline possible, that uh, he could pull out uh, 51% in this upcoming runoff election. There are also contradictions within the Bolsonaro coalition. Coalition. It's called the a Bible Beef and Bullets Coalition. That is to say, uh, religious zealots, mostly Christian, uh, agriculturalists, and the military. The agriculturalists, who are one of the most powerful components of that coalition, would like to sell more soybeans to China in light of the fact that there's this trade war between China and the United States. And it's not clear if Mr. Bolsonaro will be amenable to this idea of getting ever closer to China, which that kind of trade deal would allow. Not only that, but his chief financial advisor and economic advisor Uh, has now been charged with a kind of fraud. Uh, He comes out of the University of Chicago, and if he is weakened, that will simultaneously weaken the Bolsonaro coalition. But in any case, I don't want to be uh, overly sanguine about the results, possibly, of this election. Right now, it looks like Mr. Bolsonaro is in the driver's seat. Finally, I know we want to get to China Vice President Mike Pence made a speech this week before the ultra-conservative Hudson Institute where he made all kinds of charges against China. I want to play a clip where he starts out by saying that China is using all types of weapons and tools to have a negative impact on the United States. The American people deserve to know that as we speak, Beijing is employing a whole-of-government approach using political, economic, and military tools, as well as propaganda to advance its influence and benefit its interests in the United States. So that was Vice President Mike Pence talking about China this week. What's your take on what he said? What's your reaction? Well, my reaction was that it was a far-breathing speech. It was a very dangerous speech. It reminded me of the speech made in 1946 by British politician Winston Churchill in Missouri, where he basically uh, made the opening shot in what was to be a Cold War with Moscow. I think it's fair to say that this speech was inaugurating a Cold War with regard to China. Recall that this is a turnabout from what happened 45 years ago. 
when President Nixon traveled to Beijing and made an anti-Soviet coalition uh, with China. Uh, China then flipped, and then after the United States was driven out of Vietnam, uh, China attacked Vietnam, waged war in Vietnam, and then part of the payoff was this massive direct foreign investment into China by U.S. corporations that has created this juggernaut that now bids fair to leave the United States sprawling in the dust, which has led to this remarkable speech by Mr. Pence just a few days ago. Well, obviously, this is a story we're going to have to keep watching on a whole lot of levels, different levels. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. I had a friend who, when you used to call him up, he'd say, Prep for the revolution. Men ready for the revolution. He got that from Secretary. So I wanted to know what he meant by ready for the revolution. His brother named Kwame Ture, who was Stokely Carmichael. And this is called Understanding Readiness for Kwame Ture who was Stokely Carmichael. How do we know who we are? Except in the world, going through it together. How do we know where we are? Except with each other, facing reality like dogs straining on a leash. How do we know who are our friends and who are our enemies? Only by what they do, who they hold on to, who they fight for and support. Who they help, who they feed in the storm, whose side they're on. How do we know who can lead? Only by seeing them do it. Only by feeling the realness, and hopefulness, their sincerity and courage. Only by touching their love for the actual selves of us. Only by their suffering in our name jailings, the beatings, and torture, only by the way our enemies describe them, only by their wisdom and plans, their affirmation, their pronouncements and positions, what they think and move on, what direction they give us to transform our slave conditions. How do we know who are our heroes? Can we tell, yes, if we are conscious, even when they are still alive? Who is it that will take this brother's place? All of those who understand what his life was, what he wanted, what he did, and who in the end he looked to as comrades in struggles. Whatever names or philosophies or ideologies or uniforms or preparation. All who want democracy and freedom. How do we know we must struggle? How do we know? Is that why we are here? <laughs> to listen again? To see again? To feel again? Can we still ask the brother we celebrate? whom we love, whom we still desire to lift us with his transforming fire. We know. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this segment, I'm in conversation with Michelle Roberts, National Co-Coordinator of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance. Welcome to, well, you're part of the show, Michelle, but welcome to this segment anyway. Yeah, thank you, Esther. And I say that because you are our environmental justice producer, and you have been for, what, more than a year now, and I really appreciate all your contributions. But today we're just going to kind of wrap up this series that I've been working on, uh, D.C. in the era of climate change. And I wanted to first get your reaction to the piece. We've had an overview the first week uh, from the Union of Concerned Scientists. We asked the question the next week, you know, what if the metro was free and people could ride public transportation rather than fill the highways here with cars? We have some of the worst air and some of the worst traffic in the country. We also talked to some local organizers who are trying to stop construction of a controversial electrical substation in their neighborhood. And this was very much connected to the issue of climate change because it involves our local utility here, Pepco Exelon, which is part of this massive, you know, fossil fuel and nuclear utility uh, nationally. And then finally, last week, we talked about the health impacts that people may not really think about. And, you know, as we speak, Hurricane Michael is the latest superstorm to hit the United States. And But in addition to the, the deaths, unfortunately, not only here, but around the world from these types of weather events, people are having impacts on their health in terms of Lyme disease, uh, other types of vector diseases from mosquitoes and other diseases from a warmer climate. So, you know, as we kind of look back at the series, I wanted to first just get your reaction. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for all of those, uh, Esther, because each one of them were very informative. And what we fail to realize is that the particular issues that were covered over the past few weeks are all inextricably linked to our legacy environmental challenges and our current climate crisis. And this is where we're vexed and challenged, especially for communities of color and the poor. Communities, especially here in uh, southeast and in the southwest uh, part of the city, who live right at our nation's riverfront. They are impacted by sea level rise. Uh, With this new expansion by Exelon, they are impacted with their health as it relates to the high rates of asthma and cancers and heart diseases that continue to rise in that area. The stresses of dealing with the ongoing development and building, pushing them further and further away from city services. In addition to that, With that of sea level rise and the change in climate, as you said, the vector-borne diseases, different types of insects that are coming online, and and some insects that are now have built resistance to the existing means of 
extermination, if you will, and thereby justifying in some people's minds the need to use even graver and more extreme methods of insecticides, which we know insecticides are part of the oil and gas regime. So all of this is interconnected. And so therefore, that was a very great series that was done in order to educate the public as to why, and even Wamata, why it is that we should have reduced rates or free metro rides. The thread throughout the whole thing for me was just really the failure of the federal government and federal public policy to address climate change, to address the transportation, heating, uh, utilities, all the things that are contributing, you know, cars, you know, while we're doing the series, you know, Trump is rolling back the standards for emissions for cars. So the thread throughout the whole thing was how the government uh, is not doing what it should, especially under the current regime, the Trump regime, they are so in the pocket of these corporations that it's just blatant. You know, maybe before it was it was bad, but now it's just blatant in the pocket of corporations from pipelines to utilities to car makers to the oil companies, whatever uh, they are having their way. And the, the climate is paying the, the we're paying the cost with our climate. Absolutely, Esther. One, you know, what we fail to realize is that when we look across the board at our legacy of how it is that we incorporated oil and gas into our lifestyle, and especially oil, these corporations don't waste anything. So that same gasoline that powers your car some fail to realize will also be the lipstick on their lips, the baby's diaper on the baby's bottom, the floor mat in your in your car, the padding under your flooring in your house. And even as we talk about solar panels, we even have to be careful with that because there is oil in some cheaply made solar panels. So as opposed to the federal government looking towards a precautionary fix as to addressing that of health disparities and the crisis that has been placed on the climate, we're looking at a quick market fix addressing the challenge and creating sustainability. But many communities of color and the poor are actually saying they don't want to sustain this. Sustain what? The land use patterns have a lot to do with this as well. And land use patterns, as we know, date back to segregation, before segregation, if you will. So therefore, people are living in harm's way based on the color of their skin, the forced migration of the native indigenous people, yet another. When we look in Alaska, the way that the native indigenous brothers and sisters were actually forced to locate along the coast, that was not by their design. That was because it made it easier for the U.S. military to drop down supplies on them without having to go 
into Alaska. Mm-hmm. And so we actually have a history of placing certain people in harm's way. Then in addition to that, create environmental policies that say it's okay to place risk on folks. We call it risk analysis. Hmm. Well, I know when we first started the series, uh, Hurricane Florence was happening, right? So we started the series with a hurricane and we're ending it with a hurricane. And there was this specter of these hog farms in North Carolina flooding and they did flood. You know, what, how many tons of gallons of animal feces, you know, and the fact that they were actually, even before the storm, their method of dispersal was to spray it in a field like next to a community or basically in a community where people live. So every tra- tragedy, every scenario we have just show gives us more and more examples of how this market-based approach to the environment is not sustainable. You're talking about sustainability. I mean, and every time, you know, we do a deep dive into a subject like this, you know, you just come back to the fact that capitalism cannot be a solution for for solving these problems because it all goes back to these corporations that have profit as their first priority. So a couple of things are happening right now. You have, and, and I have, if you notice, my voice is raspy. Mm-hmm. And I have this cough because I have severe challenges with allergies. But this year, it has been the worst ever. Right now, because of all the rains that we've had on the East Coast, there's a high rate of ragweed. And the tree pollen. In addition to that, as you know, Esther, I serve many communities across the nation. And I was in the Southwest a few weeks ago. And the fires are still happening. They're still burning. And so, therefore, the particulate matter from the fires have now spanned, as they say, as far as northern New York. Uh, I was in New Mexico where the the particulates of the fires were hovering over the mountains. You could not see the mountaintop. Now, in combination with ragweed, if you have any type of respiratory issues, you are either going to the hospital for asthma, and some physicians are perplexed as to how it is they're treating people. Because again, Thank you for the other piece with Katie Huffling and others when many people don't realize that physicians who were in medical school, actually, it's an elective for classes that have any relationship to that of like climate issues, environment. environmental toxics issues. Right. So that's an elective. That's not a requirement. <laughs> so not all doctors uh, take 
classes that speak to this. So we're in a conundrum right now as it relates to the rollbacks on all of these federal policies that the federal government is doing in addition to the storms that we're dealing with. And as you spoke to the Carolinas right now as we speak, the Carolinas are actually looking at Michael very closely because Michael is slated to go to the Carolinas. So now here they're already dealing with swollen rivers and creeks and streams. And now you're going to be exacerbated by another storm. And then just also let's think about with migration patterns. When you're in forced migration patterns, you go to what you know and is comfortable so that you're able to lessen the stress, right? So let's think about this. Many people have already evacuated to Florida from Puerto Rico Hmm. after Maria. Then there are those who had evacuated from previous storms and remained along that coastal zone there, along Florida, uh, Georgia, the Carolinas, based on the other storms. Right. And then they say that many in Florida would typically evacuate to Tallahassee because Tallahassee is safer, higher ground, so they say. But now when you think about it, Tallahassee is right there at the eye of the storm. Well, I know we're going to run out of time, so I I definitely want to have you talk about your work on the rollbacks. Sure. One of the biggest rollbacks... right now that we're working on is the risk management program. We have over 12,000 facilities, 12,500 high-risk facilities that are across the United States. And many of these facilities are located in dense areas, dense urban areas and rural areas along Appalachia and down in the Gulf Coast. So as we think about these storms that are coming along and you think about the fact that the administration wants to roll back the modest gains that everyday people push to get, like in terms of protections, uh, protections, what, what kind of gains? Like leak, simple things like having leak detectors on on above ground storage tanks, or making sure that volunteer firefighters know what's uh, being stored on and near and around these facilities, and in addition to that, are trained to be even able to address any type of explosion that would happen as a result of it. Oh, I still remember. Hurricane Harvey in Houston. And with every storm, there is some type of industrial facility. And we get a up close view of the fact that there is no regulation and that people are living right next to really hazardous facilities that are not stormproof, that are not built to withstand storms. And we, we don't even have time to get to the, the, the issue of, of nuclear plants. Absolutely, absolutely. And when a state calls for a, the relief from a disaster after these hurricanes, what many don't realize is the federal government then has the right to be able to roll back environmental protections for the sake of helping to, as they say, expedite the cleanup. But that's 
the contradiction there. Yeah, yeah, well, it's more than a contradiction. It makes no sense. Like, I want to go back to Harvey again, how these corporations, these facilities down there were just flaring off pollutants. So why do environmental standards have to be thrown out of the window? So if the storm hadn't happened, what were you going to do with the pollutants then? Absolutely, absolutely, (laughs) yes. And they just burn and flare, and that's what many of our communities tell us, that it looks like when a hurricane is coming through, it looks like Armageddon because the flames are going as well. And this is the side of storms that the average American does not see. But those who live life at the fence line, that's how they live daily. Those are two really important rollbacks. And is there another one that you want to mention before we talk yes, about solutions? The farm worker per- the Farm Worker Protection Worker Standards. So we finally got the Farm Worker Standards up to the fact that you had to at least be 18 to be able to operate pesticides. Many people don't realize that children were actually spraying pesticides. Glyphosate. 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 Oh, my goodness. Right? Under the age of 18. We got the age up to 18. We got labeling and all of these other pieces, you know, right to know, labeling, age requirements. And that's what's being rolled back. That's what's being rolled back, then, or on the block to be rolled back. The National Pollution Environmental Standard Act, the NEPA Act, that is actually on the chopping board. You know, Val- Valerie Plame, uh, she was on, I think she was on Twitter, or I saw something on online, and, you know, they're always talking about, you know, either keeping America safe or, you know, fighting for our freedom and, and all this resource, all our resources going into these wars. And I think it was after a story around these types of rollbacks and the real pollution of our environment, the degradation of our, our natural spaces. And she said, well, you know, soon there won't be anything to fight for. Hmm. Like, we're like, what are we, what are we protect? You know, we are polluting our own backyard. You know, the system that we're living under, this capitalist system, is polluting the water, polluting the air, polluting the soil. And and there's so much. I mean, we're talking right now, but this week you have this U.N. report. Yes. You know, as we're we're wrapping up. So we have this U.N. report and tell us about it and... And then we'll go to solutions. Yes. Even with the U.N. report, it is actually telling us that unless we reduce our reliance on that of oil and gas, you know, we are really on a, on a quick path to disaster. And we must be able to be mindful of this. And this is why in our solutions, we are looking to how it is we incorporate that of safer substitutions, if you will, safer, safer chemicals, safer processes. And, and with that, safer processes does not mean that you can, as some would say, that you can frack safer. because we've heard that but no you cannot frack safer but we're talking about how it is you really address that of safer chemicals and and products that are that actually do not create more of a disparity with respect to health and environmental degradation i can see the intersection 
of what you're talking about with the whole keep it in the ground movement mm-hmm. and some of the the more climate based as you said at the start of our conversation so much of what we have around us is oil based it and the solution has to include making things that don't involve fossil fuels and living in such a chemical based society. I mean, I just have to replace a carpet that was ruined in a storm recently. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't want to go buy another carpet that has all the fumes Mm -hmm. and all of that. I just want to use some rug that I have already have. That's a natural wool rug because I don't want that. And a lot of times we just aren't given the luxury of even making that choice. No, we are not. We are not. We really do need to look at how we change this political economy to better address that much healthier uh, climate and beloved community. You know, we are stuck in a certain mindset. I know, mm-hmm. I think it was Mary Che said at the press conference for the Clean Energy DC Act, she was talking about how powerful inertia is so even those of us who want solar power you know very often it's a long time before we get around to it because if even if you can't get panels on your house and go through that process and expense you can switch to renewable energy through your current provider you know you can say i want all wind and solar power Mm -hmm. right but a lot of us don't do it because it's like oh man how do I figure out how to do that? Or how, who do I pick? And, you know, are there are all these people sending me stuff in the mail. You know, what am I going to do, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, how can I support vulnerable communities who are directly impacted? You know, what can I do? So can we give people some websites or some places they can contact? To- we sure can. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you're thinking about energy and how it is you deal with public utilities, there's a website, the Center for Earth Energy and Democracy. It's seed, C-E-E-D dot org. They have wonderful, valuable information on how it is that you engage with your public utilities. And that's something that many people don't know about. But you have the right to go and engage with your public utilities. Oh, well, we definitely did on this show. I mean, I actually was just thinking because... In the run-up to Exelon taking over Pepco, we were on that story. I just realized working on this series that we need to get back to that and we need to keep an eye on Exelon because they're doing a lot of stuff around the country and we pay them money now. So we have a right to keep an eye on them. Absolutely. In addition to that, we have the website EJ for All, the number four all.org, where we just recently placed a interactive map that shows all the high-risk facilities and where you are located with respect to those facilities, but more solutions, things that you can do to push for effective change in your communities with respect to those types of facilities. In addition to that, we can push for, especially in our areas where we know we have high rates of asthma, Why not have clean school buses and public vehicles that if you're going to be traveling through these communities, then let's make sure that we actually address the issue and have uh, school buses and and public utility buses, uh, excuse me, vehicles that are as clean as possible, not propane-pelled, well, propelled, but 
clean vehicles. And then with respect to that of simple base things at home, with respect to canning your tomatoes and vegetables and and people are actually gardening now, then we can act, you can can your products as opposed to purchasing some of these uh, bisphenol A lined cans and products that are leaching toxics into uh, into your food sources. Hmm. Well, that's a whole other story that we've talked about before in terms of the dollar stores and everything. But um, we'll have to wrap it up. Um, Hopefully what we can do um, at the end of this show or, you know, on our next show is just give people, just keep that list in front of people. You know what I mean? Maybe add a climate tip every show or something we can do, you know, or uh, environmental justice tip, you know, and just and just keep the issue out there and, and keep the series going in a way. I think that would be great, Esther, because right now people are really fired up and looking for things that they can do. Yeah, let's do that. I've been speaking with Michelle Roberts, National Co-Coordinator of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance and our environmental justice producer for On the Ground. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Esther. And thoughts on our climate and planet are our first and last words for today. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. I want to thank my guests, Gerald Horn and Michelle Roberts, and also thanks to Lydia Curtis and Chantel James for their contributions to the show. The music we played this hour included Race Babbling by Stevie Wonder and Understanding Readiness by Amiri Baraka in honor of his birthday on October 7th. Our series, D.C. in the Era of Climate Change, was supported by a grant from the D.C. Commission on the Arts and Humanities. You can listen to the entire series as well as complete versions of all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. You can also write us at our website. We'd love to hear from you. If you're a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On the Ground Show. Our Facebook page has a picket sign with green letters that say, On the Ground. On the Ground Show is also on Twitter, and we are on iTunes under the title WPFW On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be at the Think Local Awards this Thursday, October 18th at the Showplace in Northwest D.C. But until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.